Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 228. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm looking at a couple of films to do with politics and the law, which are two subjects that are of particular interest to us all in these modern times. The first one is from 1939 and it is Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington starring James Stewart and Gene Arthur. And then we go all the way to 1957 for 12 Angry Men, Sidney Lumet's first movie, and a movie with a crazily good cast of actors uh, headed by Henry Fonda and Martin Balsam. I'm not going to go through them all. But anyway, sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and I'll get this very difficult podcast out of the way, and I will tell you why it is a very difficult podcast. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation. There's only one rule, and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old, and I have to like them. I'm going to be looking at the history of the films, the social context in which the films were made, and relate that to the way movies are now. Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by mp3 or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language so if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids don't listen to it when the kids are around unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so how is everybody going? Uh, Here's the reason why it's a difficult podcast. Our internet is fucked. Uh, The National Broadband Network, which was originally a Labour Party idea and was then totally screwed up by the Liberal Party, is not functioning at the moment. We've had two or three technicians out. We've got another one booked to come out tomorrow to look at it. And in the meantime, everything's fucked. So any information I get about these movies off the internet is coming through my mobile phone because for some reason I can't even tether the phone to my computer. So if I sound a little short and a little bit frazzled and a little bit blah, 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 that's the reason why. It's incredibly frustrating not being able to get online. And even though I am tethering my phone to one of my laptops, the big donkey on which I do the podcast is just for some reason not connecting. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, I apologize that the, the podcast is a day late because of that, but it's beyond my control. I really did try to get everything done. I even got the movies watched, but for some reason, uh, the technology is not helping at all. Don't they know that I'm doing a podcast here and that there are people all over this clay and granite planet who want to listen to me <laughs> waffle about movies? For fuck's sake, I wish they'd get this shit together. So, yeah, the, so that's happening. Um, apart from that, not very much at all. Uh, I'm going to share this with you, and it, it's too much information. I acknowledge that right up front. Next Saturday, I'm going in for a colonoscopy, which is something guys of a certain age have to do. They knock you out and um, do things to your bum, basically, which isn't the bad part. That part's okay. You sleep through that. You wake up kind of refreshed, and they tell you that everything's okay, hopefully. Uh, The hard part is the three or four days beforehand. Actually, this is Monday next week I'm going, so a week from today. So anyway, here's what happens that you have to go on a special diet for about three days before they do the alien abduction thing to you afterwards. 
uh, and you've got to kind of ease off on food, the first thing you do is you go on to clear liquids and white bread and, and things that aren't going to basically make a stain at the bottom of your gastrointestinal tract. Tract, sorry, not tract. And then they ease you on to taking these special concoctions, which are kind of like Kool-Aid. And you have different ones you've got to take at different times. And you drink them. And basically what they do is make you incredibly fond of going to the toilet. So basically it clears you out big time. So, yeah, this is something guys listening are going to have something to look forward to as long as they're in a country that has some kind of medical care. But it's um, it's one of those things you've got to do now and then. And that doesn't particularly phase me, but I just don't like the muck they give you to drink. And it's, to be honest with you, it tastes really bad. But you want down a couple of litres of it, so it's not just like a tiny little shot glass full of stuff. This is like tons and tons of this rubbish. And you've got to do it at certain times of day and it makes your life miserable up until you have to go and get knocked out by the doctor. So that's happening too. So you see, I mean, they're getting fucked either by the internet or by a proctologist. So um, it's just not a good time right now, which is why I'm laughing because when times are good, that's when I start worrying about things. When times are bad, that's when the sense of humor comes into play. Go figure. So um, all of that's happening. Uh, the Super Bowl just happened. Apparently some team won. And we, of course, that means for film buff something very special. All the Super Bowl ads for cool movies come out and we get to watch them. So I'm looking forward to, when I can get online, looking at all of the um, trailers for movies I want to see and kind of grooving on that. But at the moment, I just want to get back online and I want to get um, a week from today over with so that I can get on with my life and do stuff. So what have I been watching? I actually found a way to uh, have, bring up my letterboxed list. I downloaded the letterboxed app so that I can do that. So at least we've got some kind of data coming through. Uh, I've seen a few things, actually. I've done pretty well this time. Uh, first thing I'm going to mention is I went onto Netflix and binged Altered Carbon, which is a 10-episode series based on the first of three novels by an English author called Richard K. Morgan. Uh, it's about a um, kind of assassin kind of guy called Takeshi Kovach, who in 500 years in the future, it said, who lives in a world where people can transfer to different bodies very easily. Some alien technologies come up and it's enabled them to be born and soon after birth have implanted in them things called stacks at the base of their skull, which basically means that they can have their consciousness slotted into other human bodies. Um, Kovach has been on ice for 500 years. They found his DNA and they found his stack and put it into a new body which is known as a sleeve. He's then brought to um, a very rich guy called, um, well I don't know what he's called, but played by James Purifoy, who wants him to solve his own, this guy's murder because he, his previous version of himself was murdered and even though he had a backup he wants to find out why he died. So it's in a very kind of cyberpunky future. There's a lot of stuff about Kovach history. And the interesting thing is that um, 
Kovac originally is Hungarian-Japanese, but he's slotted into a European body played by Joel Kinnaman. But we do get to see Kovac as himself in the film, so it's really, in the series, sorry, so it's not really a case of whitewashing, because it's all a part of the plot. And some serious shit gets down, and the movie, well, the series, why do I keep saying movie? It feels like a 10-episode movie to me, that's why I'm saying movie. It's not something to watch with your kids. Uh, it's gory, bloody, sadistic. There's a lot of nudity, male and female, in it, understandably, given the circumstances of the film. And it really does uh, give us a very lived-in feeling future. I really like the future in Altered Carbon. It's getting kind of mixed reviews from the pundits, but I enjoyed it. I watched all 10 episodes, and you know me, I'm inclined to binge. This is before the internet went down, of course. And, um, yeah, I kind of I recommend that one. So that's the first thing I saw, which is fairly recent in my viewing stuff. I did see a TV movie. I think it's a TV movie. It played like a TV movie, anyway, from about 1972 called The Man, which is kind of prophetic and also kind of cautious and careful about the way it did things. It's about a politician an american politician played by james Earl jones who through the circumstances of the death of a president and a a few other bits and pieces ends up becoming the first black president of the united states see crazy science fiction concept um it's got a whole bunch of other people in it burgess meredith amongst others but it really does play so careful and so polite uh it does have uh, a few racial, racial epithets, not the N-word, but a few other ones that are quite um, ugly. And it's, yeah, it kind of plays like a movie of the past rather than of the present. And that's something I, it shares very much with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington about, which I'll speak a little bit later. But it kind of didn't work for me because, even though it may have been a shocking concept in 1972, to have a black man as the president of the United States. It's something that's now been achieved, and in some ways it takes the luster off that particular film. So there's that. Now, I did watch something I've seen before fairly recently, which is a movie called Pendulum, which has a great cast. It's got George Pippard in it, uh, Gene Seberg, Richard Kiley, And it's about um, a cop whose wife is murdered and he's the suspect and he's also working out of Washington and he's the head of a task force to fight crime and all sorts of shit goes down. And it's very, um, it's kind of late 1960s and it plays a bit like late 1960s. Gene Seberg's in it and plays the unfortunate wife who gets murdered. And... um, it's just got odd tonal stuff in there, and the character played by George Peppard is a morally dubious one. Uh, Richard Kiley gets the good role, which is the crusading lawyer who ends up defending him, even though he's been on the other side of a number of court cases with George Peppard's character. But it kind of works. I, was, I found it much more entertaining than I did The Man, because The Man's very much a talk fest and doesn't push things the way it should. Nonetheless, Pendulum's very much a, a B picture from the 1960s. But I kind of liked it. I liked the style of things and I, I liked the actors in it and it kind of worked for me. Uh, I did 
I'm not going to mention a couple of things I saw that were really bad. I did see an Australian film called Australia Day, which was directed by Chris Stenders, who did Red Dog. And it's kind of three stories that end up being woven into one, all set in Brisbane, in Queensland, on Australia Day, which is stinking hot. Uh, the movie starts out with three young people, one an Indigenous girl, another a young Islamic Australian, and the third a Chinese young woman, all of whom start the film running. And we find out what's happening to them, and it's a very serious and um, confronting movie in some ways, looking at a lot of issues that Australia is facing as far as immigration is concerned, as far as relationships between police and Indigenous populations is concerned, and also um, the conflicts between white racists and Muslim Australians. So there's a lot of that going down. Uh, it's got Brian Brown in it, who plays an older guy who rescues reluctantly the Chinese woman who's running down the street who has been human trafficked into the sex trade in a factory. Uh, he doesn't know what's going on. She can't speak English, so she can't tell him what's going on. And Brian Brown ends up having a, an epiphany about things. And he's got a backstory which is kind of interesting. It looks into the corporization of farmlands. He's lost his farm because um, of some very dodgy business practices and he wants to make a stand about that but it's it's kind of like they're cramming too much into the film but I still think it's honest I think there's some great acting in there there's a number of fine young actors in there and you get people like Chris Haywood and Brian Brown giving the older actor support in the film and that kind of worked for me. I talked about it with Michaela Simpson for our first talk of the year, and it was a bit of a bummer because Michaela's Indigenous. It's not a, a bright and cheerful start to our year of talking about movies. And so it was, um, it was a little bit of a hard one to do. But next time we're doing The Shape of Water, so I'm not too unhappy about things. And, uh, yeah, and back into another year of doing that. Uh, I did revisit a cool Shane Black movie from about, it's got to be over 10 years ago now, it's about 12, 13 years ago now, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, of course, with Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Uh, I love the plotting of it, I love the uh, breaking of the fourth wall that's in it, I like the humour of it and the meet-cute between uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character Harry and Michelle Monaghan's character Charity. Uh, and I like um, Val Kilmer playing Gay Perry. It's just one of those fun action films that is very hard to make well because you need to get some charismatic actors in there. You need to get someone as sharp as Shane Black and then you need somebody like Shane Black to direct it. In fact, this is what he did. It was his first movie as a director. And it's great fun revisiting that. So totally enjoyed Kiss Kiss Bang Bang on, I think, the third viewing. Uh, I did see a Netflix movie, which is about a subject that's fairly close to my mind and my heart, and that is uh, a movie called A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which is about Doug Kenny, one of the two people, uh, along with Henry Beard, who started National Lampoon. Um, Kenny, unfortunately, had a tragic end to his life, 
but the Netflix movie kind of works. Will Forte plays um, Kenny. There's a whole bunch of good supporting actors in there. Uh, Martin Mull's in there in a very interesting role. Basically, anybody who's anybody in modern comedy ends up doing a cameo in this film as somebody or other. John McHale's in there playing Chevy Chase, which is a bit of an irony since they both work together in Community, which I've never seen, by the way. And, uh, yeah, it kind of worked for me because National Lampoon's something that I read back in the day or every time I could get a copy of it and loved. I loved the transgressive humour of it. I liked the absurdist humour of it. It was a lot of fun for me. And um, this one's a, a kind of interesting little picture of the kind that wouldn't get made except for streaming services like Netflix that need to produce product and do it quite well. So... I watched that. Uh, then I watched the movie that I thought I was going to do for this podcast, which was Chris Cross starring Burt Lancaster, Yvonne DiCarlo and Dan Dure. And then I realised I'd done it about 100 episodes ago. So that was knocked on its ass very, very quickly. Uh, and while I was waiting to do this podcast because of internet problems, I watched two other things. I watched The Robe, which was the first feature film ever done in Cinemascope, and it's a biblical epic starring Richard Burton, Gene Simmons, Michael Rennie, and a cast of thousands. It's one of those careful and uh, very kind of oblique biblical epics where you never see the face of Jesus, and there's lots of choirs going, in the background. And, um, yeah, it really is a weird one. Uh, Richard Burton plays one of the Romans who was there when Jesus was crucified, who ends up with um, the robe of, that he wore just before he croaked. And his slave Demetrius, played by Victor Mature, who was in a movie after this, a sequel called Demetrius and the Gladiators. So Richard Burton's character um, gets caught in the rain and puts the robe around himself and goes mad. Basically, this robe of Jesus Christ drives him nuts until he accepts Jesus as his saviour. It's kind of like it's mind-fucking him until he becomes a Christian, which doesn't seem fair to me. It just doesn't seem right. So there's that happening in the movie. I picked this up for five bucks, as indeed I did Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But I picked up the rope for five bucks and I thought I'd watch it. It's over long. It's got some really nice matte paintings in the background and some great overacting. Ernest Thessinger's in it, who you remember as Dr. Pretorius in The Bride of Frankenstein. He's there 20 years later. And a bunch of other character actors that you know. Ah, yeah, I know that guy. Uh, Including Dean Jaggers in there. There's just a ton of them. So you watch it more for the character actors than for a lesson in applied theology. So I watched that, and then I watched Justice League Gods and Monsters, which is a kind of alternate universe where Zod was the father of Superman rather than Jor-El. And it's all about how the world evolves after that. Uh, It's pretty good. It's one of the DC animations. And as we know, DC animations, with the exception of Wonder Woman, tend to work a lot better than their live-action, big-screen DCEU films and and this one works kind of well too i I really enjoyed watching it i realized about three quarters way through that i'd seen it before but it does uh do what it does quite well the animation's the usual kind you get with these things and the voice acting is always on point and really really well applied so i kind of enjoyed that and uh that's about it for what i've been watching 
apart from a ton of YouTube videos and all the other bits and pieces and detritus of life, hasn't been a lot else. So anyway, I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I am going to talk about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. 1939 movie, which isn't sure whether it's a comedy or a drama, starring Claude Rains, James Stewart, and Gene Arthur, and directed by the great Frank Capra. Goes to Washington is a significant picture. It is significant because it emphasizes democracy in action. I consider it a real privilege and a real experience to have played even a minor part under the distinguished direction of Frank Capra. By far the greatest picture of filmdom's top director, three-time winner of the coveted Academy Award, the most timely, the most vital, the most significant picture ever to come out of Hollywood. A homespun boy and a hard-boiled, worldly wise girl in a picture carved out of the everyday lives of everyday Americans with those inimitable Capra overtones of drama, laughter and romance, plus the finest supporting cast ever assembled. Okay, so Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a 1939 comedy directed by Frank Capra about American politics, oddly enough. Uh, the I'll give you the IMDb praise for this because I'm still running off my mobile phone as far as online um, information is concerned. A naive man is appointed to fill a vacancy in the United States Senate. His plan promptly collides with political corruption, but he doesn't back down so that's pretty much it uh you've got james stewart playing jefferson smith uh who runs a newspaper for boys called boy stuff which is a bit odd now i'm going to be up front with this james stewart's character basically you know, runs a newspaper designed and for male children that plays differently in 2018 that it did in 1939 here he is a guy he's around 30 or so um he's single and he hangs around with young boys a lot and does a newspaper for them and seems to find their companies more um nice than um that of adults now that's kind of one of those things that sets off a lot of flags to our viewpoint but in 1939 it was considered okay a bit like spencer tracy in boys town but uh, anyway we'll leave that aside because that's our viewpoint and that's different than the way things were seen all those years ago well how long ago was it again let me think da 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 gotta be 79 years ago so yeah things were different then or they weren't necessarily different but they were seen as being different uh then you have gene arthur playing saunders who 
was the office manager in a sense for the previous senator who died and uh, she's a kind of hard-boiled woman who uh, knows the business of politics inside out but because of that glass ceiling that was much much lower in those days she really doesn't get a look in we also get claude rains playing senator joseph payne who is the other senator from the unnamed state of which jefferson smith is a senator we get Edward Arnold as Jim Taylor, who is basically the Rupert Murdoch of their state and runs all of the politics via his media empire. We also get a nice character actor I like called Guy Kibbe playing Governor Hopper, whose um, children seem to be much more savvy as far as politics are concerned than he is. And in fact, they're the ones who suggest Jefferson Smith for the job. Then you have Thomas Mitchell, a character actor whose career I like a lot. And every time I see Thomas Mitchell in something else, I really enjoy it and I really love it. And I'm impressed with his chops as an actor. He plays a guy called Diz Smith, who's a political journalist who is friends with Saunders, the Gene Arthur character. Uh, he has a standing invitation for her to marry him at some stage. It's one of those kind of cute relationships. Neither of them thinks that it's going to work and it would ever happen, but they're kind of close buddies, but in the grammar of a 1939 film, of course, there has to be a romantic relationship because women and men just can't be pals. But it turns out that ultimately, as, as inevitably... Um, Saunders and Jefferson Smith form a liaison it becomes that kind of friendship that we now know is is the preferred option for guys who have a standing invitation for women to marry them it's the best option being friend zoned worst option is a restraining order but they didn't have restraining orders in 1939 of course Senator Payne the character played by Claude Rains who was English by the way um, is in the pocket of Jim Taylor and his political machine in the state and they've bought up a whole bunch of land where a dam is going to be built so they'll be able to sell it back to the state they've bought it all under proxy names so that it doesn't look corrupt and they're going to buy it but then Jefferson Smith comes along and he's one political idea he goes to the Senate with one political idea to start a boys camp where boys from all over America can learn wood skills and good citizenship and all those other things at this camp which just happens to be at the same location a place called Willett Creek as the dam is supposed to be going through so they immediately come into conflict there and when he's told to back down on the camp idea at Willett Creek because it's eventually going to be a dam he refuses and the party machine or political party machine of Jim Taylor provides a whole bunch of forged documents saying that Jefferson Smith is corrupt and proving it to beyond a reasonable doubt by basically getting a whole bunch of people to lie very well on the in the committee that is formed to handle this particular matter. The committee takes its determination that he's corrupt as fuck and then just on his last moments as a senator he decides to filibuster the senate by he, there are some criteria he's got to um, fulfill he's got to stand up he can't sit down at any stage he can't leave the podium he can only be interrupted for points of order questions and so he decides he's going to stay there until the people of his state back him up 
and decide that they're going to say that he's honest and he can stay as a senator, blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, Jim Taylor's political machine works against that. As the, the kids print out a newspaper telling the truth of Jeff Smith's um, plans for the camp and all the rest of it, and they print it out on little printing presses and spread it all around the state. Meanwhile, the political machine actually goes to war against a whole bunch of kids. And even though this is a comedy, there are some pretty brutal things happen to some of the kids. Their billy carts full of newspapers get run over. The kids get beaten up. A kid gets hit by a truck. There's all sorts of nasty shit going on, which is kind of waysided because the movie doesn't really want to address that. It wants to talk about politics and American ideals and the red, white and blue rah 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 because there's going to be a war in well there's already a war in most of the world but America came into it two years later so Capra's movie is, even though it does talk a lot about corrupt politics, in fact it was shown for a bunch of Washington politicians, most of whom walked out of the film because it was considered to show them up to be corrupt alcoholic and not necessarily the people they pretended to be come election time so the movie's got a streak of very unrealistic idealism about it because we again this is a part of our viewpoint from the 21st century we know that politics has to greater or lesser extents always been corrupt there are lobbyists and people who run media empires who try to control the narrative it's becoming less effective now of course as the democratization of access has come through but in those days the power of the media was overwhelming William Randolph Hearst um, for instance and all of those other um, large Charles Foster Kane all those other large newspaper owners and people who controlled radio waves and the media in general had an enormous power over the way that people in every country where there was access to radio or newspapers saw the world and this movie kind of addresses that but then it remembers it's a comedy and it backs off on all of those kind of important issues it backs off on the issues of a political machine terrorizing children it, it, there are all these issues that the movie brings up but doesn't actually address and that's part of the studio I know that the Hayes office gave them an enormous amount of notes on this saying you can't do this, can't do that can't do the other thing and based on that they had some real issues with getting the movie made at all and also made in a way that makes sense uh, censorship, one of the weird effects of it is that it does leave these hanging issues and it does leave things unaddressed and it does weaken the narrative by taking out all of the stuff with a little bit of grit in it and that's a bit of a shame I think that this movie could have been a lot harder than it was you got to remember this is only two years before Citizen Kane addressed a lot of similar issues about media power as this movie and did it with a lot more guts and with the passion of a young man in this case, of course, Orson Welles. Uh, that isn't to say this is a bad movie. I just think it's kind of weak in places. One of the things that really annoyed me about the film was the kind of wide-eyed innocence and gosh wow of Jefferson Smith when he comes to Washington, going wow about the Capitol building and wow about everything he saw in Washington 
who came across as a total yokel and not as somebody who had at all a nuanced view of the world. Uh, he's a small-town guy suddenly rushed into Washington, which, of course, is part of the point of the movie. But he doesn't seem to be somebody who has thought deeply about any issues apart from a boys' camp. Uh, he's, he's not a well-rounded character, and he's not particularly well-written. On the other hand, Saunders is much cooler. She's smart, she's savvy, she knows the bullshit of politics, she knows how to use the bullshit of politics, and in fact, it's her who suggests the filibuster and who guides Smith all the way through the filibuster so that he doesn't fuck it up. She should be the one in the Senate, of course, but at that stage glass ceiling again women weren't seen to be in politics there's a lot of talk about the men of the senate and the men of government and things like that in this movie which again is something that is a little bit odd i think if you were going to remake this movie putting the jeff smith character as a woman would be kind of interesting now claude range is pretty good as senator joe payne uh he's got a quite obvious gray wig on but he does have an interesting character arc. Uh, the uh, gerrymander that uh, Jeff Smith does wears away at pain, even though he seems to be in a position where he and his side of things and the corruption of which he is a part are winning. It frays his nerves and eventually has a breakdown and confesses to everything on the floor of the Senate, which is kind of... A little over the top, a little dramatic, and a little unrealistic as well. But this isn't a movie about realism. This is a movie reassuring the public that their institutions are safe because men of good will will rise up and help them to save their country from rich bastards, in a sense. It didn't happen that way. We know this for a fact. But that's the idealism and that's the dream that Frank Capra is selling in this movie and it plays a little bit like a fairy tale and, and with a profound innocence about it which kind of makes it an odd movie from our point of view but having said that there's some interesting character actors in there we get Charles Lane who was in movies for an incredibly long time playing a reporter you get William Demarest in there who played Uncle Bud in My Three Sons in the 1960s with Frederick Murray playing another character in there you got hb warner as the senate majority leader and he's he had a long career as an actor he played in the silent movies he played jesus christ in king of kings he played mr gower in it's a wonderful life again another english guy uh, he was born in st john's wood in london in 1876 and died in 1958 at the age of 82 but he had a long silent film career and um then went on to have just even longer career as a character actor in movies right up until 1958. We've got a guy I've spoken about before in the podcast, uh, Eugene Pallet, who played Friar Tuck in The Adventures of Robin Hood and played uh, Fra Felipe in the 1940 Tyrone Power Mark of Zorro. He turns up as one of the um, corrupt guys in the home state of Jefferson Smith. Uh, you've got Edward Arnold, a character actor as well, played Jim Taylor, and he does a, a lovely job of this one. Edward Arnold, his character is the archetypal fat cat um, media baron, and he gets some kind of cool stuff to play with that, and uh, and really does 
give us a sense of menace for the character, which is kind of necessary. But he moderates it quite well because, again, as I said, this is a comedy. And having the bad guy as a nuanced villain really wouldn't have worked because, again, they were trying to keep it light. They were trying to keep it within the censorship. And this movie, I would have loved to have seen a copy of this movie or a version of this movie in an alternate universe where the Hayes Code and the production code didn't happen because I think Capra could have gone in hard on a couple of these issues but he just wasn't able to because A it wasn't his inclination to do so and B um, the censorship didn't let him. Now the movie was a crazy success in the United States budget was a million and a half they rebuilt an entire set to scale to look like the US Senate um, so it cost a million and a half dollars which wasn't small change in those days and it had uh, made $9 million in the box office, so they definitely got their bait back with that one. But again, you run into the censorship, and um, the Hayes office said to them, they wrote to the um, head of the studio, Columbia, we would urge most earnestly that you take serious counsel before embarking on the production of any motion picture based on this story. It looks to us like one that might be loaded with dynamite both for the motion picture industry and for the country at large. And they specifically objected to the generally unflattering portrayal of our system of government, which might well lead to such a picture being considered both here and more particularly abroad as a covert attack on the de democratic form of government. And they warned that the film should be make it clear that the Senate is made up of a group of fine, upstanding citizen, citizens who labour long and tirelessly for the best interests of the nation. So basically they were blowing smoke up their ass. And you've got to remember that the Hayes office was an instrumentality that was imposed on Hollywood by the government. So in a sense it was speaking for the government. And if you think that kind of stuff has gone away now and we don't have it anymore, look at things like the Transformers movies, which have a whole bunch of military hardware and kind of they have that whole subplot of a military group whose job it is to go up against Transformers. The only reason that's in there is that the US military gave the movie makers of the Transformers movies a ton of hardware to play with for the picture. So in a sense, they controlled the narrative as far as the US government and US military is concerned by offering freebies to Michael Bay and the people making the Transformers movies. So that kind of stuff still goes on slightly laterally, but in another sense, controlling things that might get out of control and that might be somewhat critical of American military power. Marvel, on the other hand, went the other way with that. And if you have a look at things like Iron Man 2, where Tony Stark outsmarts an entire government um, investigation, of course, we find out in subsequent Marvel movies that it's run by Hydra. But nonetheless, it's the sort of thing that marvel stands up for whereas the transformers movies and the studios making that don't really do that because they don't go below the surface in the same way that the mcu has a whole bunch of subtext about current politics about life in general and about uh the abuses of power so i've gone from uh jimmy stewart to Robert Downey Jr. in a few sentences there. But again, the principle underlying it is valid that the more critical a movie is of government, 
the better it is. There's an old saying by Benjamin Franklin, in fact, that says, it is the first responsibility of every citizen to question authority. And I like movies that do question authority, and this one does to the extent that it's allowed to. And we've got to give it some credit for that. It's not the kind of movie that we'd like to see made in this century and in these times. Nonetheless, uh, I think it's a, again, it's a step on the path. They do show that certain politicians and that certain media owners are corrupt. And they do it within the context of a, a comedy. The idea of having somebody who's a naive and innocent character putting it over on the bad guys is one of those fairy tales that's never going to get stale. And Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is very much that sort of fairy tale. It's not my favourite of these two movies. I think that 12 Angry Men has a lot more to say and says it in a lot more interesting manner. But again, it's a movie of its time and Frank Capra as a filmmaker I admire. I think that he got better after his war service and doing all the stuff he did overseas, which was... Um, outlined in that documentary that I saw last year, Five Came Back, where it talks about five filmmakers who were embedded during World War II into uh, various military forces, and Capra being one of them. Of course, Capra wasn't born in America, he was born in Italy, and so he did have that kind of fervor that comes with first-generation patriots. And until he saw what went on during the war, I think that that innocence and naivete, which kind of is reflected in... Jefferson Smith is part of this film. On the bright side of things, it was banned in Germany, Italy, Spain, and the USSR uh, when it came out and during World War II. So you've got to like that. Now, any movie that pisses off Hitler, ultimately, you've got to give it a little nod and you've got to go, okay, well, you're on the right side there. And Hitler was a big fan of movies. And it's one of the nice things that we can do now that we couldn't do 10 or 15 years ago. We now have the ability which is kind of cool, to do exactly what this film did, and that is to piss off Nazis. And so one of the things that we can do is when we see um, white nationalist people on social media threads, we can fight Nazis. It's nasty that we have to. But if <laughs> this silly, quaint little comedy can do it, then I think we have an obligation to do it as well. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now. When we get back, we're going to talk about a much punchier film based on the original Studio One production uh, written by Reginald Rose, the first movie directed by Sidney Lumet, and it is 12 Angry Men. I'm going to go through the cast when I talk about the movie, and it is a very fine one. On the point of that night, a man's life is at stake. I'm just saying it's possible. And I say it's not possible. I want you to watch this because I don't want to have to do it again. I'll make myself about six or seven inches shorter, okay? It's about right. Maybe a little more. Okay, a little more. Look out! Money. 
think happened. How could he be positive about anything? I don't understand you people. I mean, all these picky little points you keep bringing up, they don't mean nothing. You are going to try a man for murder. The awesome power to kill will suddenly be thrust into your hands. Watch them and pray, for someday you may become one of them. Twelve men with the smell of violent death in their nostrils. What's the matter with you guys? You're letting them slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? You cut it. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. Shut up. You're a sadist. Twelve men turned into twelve clawing animals. Kill him, Mark. Kill Twelve Angry Men is a 1957 American drama film basically about 12 jurors in a jury room deciding whether a young man of indeterminate ethnicity but non-white is to be sent to the electric chair for murdering his father. Uh, It originated as uh, Westinghouse Studio One stage play, uh, teleplay, sorry, on television in 1954 written by the guy who wrote both this 1957 version and the 1997 television film version of the play Reginald Rose. None of the jurors are mentioned by name until two of them get mentioned by name right at the end of the film. But I'll go through who the 12 actors are from 1 to 12 and then talk a little bit about the characters they play. Number one's Martin Balsam, who plays an assistant high school football coach. He's the foreman of the jury. Then we have John Fiedler, who played meek characters throughout most of his career, uh, who works in a bank. He's number two. Lee J. Cobb is a businessman uh, who plays number three. Uh, E.G. Marshall is number four, and he plays a stockbroker who's very analytical and logical. Jack Klugman is number five. Who, he's a working-class guy who came out of a slum, so he's got a little bit of insight into the life that this kid who's on trial has gone through. Uh, number six is a character actor called Edward Binns, who's a house painter, but he's a tough man, and he's, uh, he, he's thoughtful, and he takes the job very seriously. Jack Warden plays number seven. A wisecracking salesman, he's a sports fan. He's kind of treating things very trivially and gets caught out for it at various stages during the course of the movie. Number eight is the first person to vote non-guilty. He's the guy who stymies the vote to uh, send this kid to the electric chair. He's played by Henry Fonda. He's an architect. He's got two. He's got three children. And he thinks things through and he takes these obligations very, very seriously. Number nine is an old guy, uh, played by a character actor called Joseph Sweeney, who was in the original uh, teleplay version from 1954. Number 10 is Ed Begley's character. Uh, He's a garage owner, and he's basically a bigot. Uh, Racist as fuck. Number 11 is played by a a character actor called George Voskovic, and he's a European watchmaker and a, a naturalized American citizen. He was also in the 1954 teleplay. And number 12 is played by Robert Weber. He's a kind of madman advertising executive guy, um, lighthearted, kind of amiable, but ultimately kind of an indecisive person. So that's the setup for this. It's directed by Sidney Lumet. It's his first feature film. 
He'd done a lot of really good episodic television and kind of anthology television before this, but he really hadn't done a feature film. And it wasn't an easy ask because 95% of the film is set in one room. And so you've got to find different camera angles, different ways to express yourself, different ways to portray the progress of the trial and all that kind of thing. And it's not an easy ask in just one room with one table, a big long one of course, uh, 12 chairs, an electric fan and a water cooler. So that's basically what he's got to play with. And, uh, and a toilet, you've got a men's and a women's toilet down the end of the room though there are no women in the jury as indeed the title suggests so the trial of this young kid who's never named by the way which is a little bit odd nonetheless he's never named um there's a very strong case by the authorities but the defense case is very weak he's got um a court appointed lawyer who really doesn't care that much about the outcome and so there are a lot of things that are missed so they do the first round of voting on whether the kid's guilty or not guilty and it comes up 11 to 1 the one man is number eight played by henry fonda because he's henry fonda and he's in the film and he's playing a character that's thematically linked to other characters that henry fonda has played most importantly i think tom joad in the grapes of wrath so there are a number of bits of evidence that lead to the suspicion that the kid's guilty there's a quite an unusual knife that's used as a murder weapon and is found uh, on the scene. There's the um, evidence of an old man downstairs who says that he heard um, the kid say, I'm going to kill you, and then saw him run down the stairs and flee the building 15 seconds later. There's the evidence of a woman across the L tracks from the apartment where the murder took place who says she saw the murder take place through the last couple of carriages of an uh, elevated train running past the windows between her window and uh, the window where the murder took place and a few other bits and pieces there so and the kid can't says he went out to a movie and it finished about 12 31 o'clock might have been later than that but he can't remember what the films are because obviously he was he was kind of distressed so you've got those bits of evidence and one by one through logic and, and through looking at the evidence they take apart piece by piece the case against this kid uh, and we also get a dissection of the character of all but one of the jurors now the one that we don't hear much about is actually the foreman played by martin bolton he does a good job of it but he's the only character that we don't get his reasons for voting guilty at the start of the movie uh, he, he's kind of an anchor point around which a lot of other things pivot. And that's kind of useful thematically and dramatically in the film. Having one person who's trying to coordinate things and is, in a sense, almost like an umpire. Then we've got John Fiedler's character. Um, he has his doubts about the guilt of the kid but goes along with the group until he finds his own courage. Uh, Lee J. Cobb's character is possibly one of the two most complex characters in the piece. He's a gruff businessman. Um, he talks about his relationship with his son, who he hasn't seen in a couple of years. And subconsciously, that and this is spoiler territory for a movie that's 60 years old, subconsciously he associates the unruliness of the accused murderer 
with his relationship with his own son. So he kind of conflates those two things in his own mind, which steers his thinking toward assuming the kid is guilty because he's an opinionated asshole in a lot of ways. Uh, then you have E.G. Marshall as the stockbroker whose appearance is a very important plot point in this one. There's one moment where the um, the way he wears his glasses is an important plot point that opens up another line of doubt into the guilt of this kid very indirectly. This is a beautifully pot plotted piece of work. Everything fits together like um, a perfect jigsaw puzzle. And I like that. There's, there's no flaw in this film that I can find, really. Edward Bin's character, even though Edward Bin's a fantastic character actor, I like him a lot. He doesn't get a lot to do except listen and react, which is not necessarily a bad thing. There are a few very kind of stagey um, characters in this piece. But his one is the man that holds back and evaluates. He's tough, but he's got his principles, uh, and, and he's ultimately... Likeable. He's one of the characters in there that you'd go and have a beer with. Oh, I forgot to mention Jack Clubman's character. He's um, a man who grew up in a slum but has moved out of the slum. He's marked by his experiences in the slum, but he's kind of on the kid's side, ultimately, as the evidence starts to peel apart. And he his insights also prove an important point regarding the knife that is used in the murder and he demonstrates that really logically and I, I love the way that uh, everybody's expertise and everybody's worldview and everyone's life experience builds the case against the kid being guilty of this murder so that's not necessarily true what they're building a case for is reasonable doubt we don't know whether the kid's guilty of the murder and that doesn't play out but reasonable reasonable doubt does come into play with this and so even though we never find out who killed the kid's father the rule of law prevails. There are a lot of themes in this movie which makes it really interesting too. I kind of broke down a list while I was watching it of all the themes. Actually, I should go through the rest of the characters too. Uh, Jack Warden's character, uh, the sports fan, he's one of those kind of apathetic guys. He knows he's got jury duty. He knows it's an obligation, but he wants to get to a ball game he's got tickets for, and he is really just doesn't care. And that kind of apathy is called out particularly by uh, Henry Fonda's character number eight at a time when they you know they, they kind of keep emphasizing that this is a person's life they're talking about it's something they should all take seriously there's one case where a couple of um, guys are playing noughts and crosses instead of having the discussion and that gets called out as well because people are reluctant to deal with life and death issues because it, well, looking at the um, jurors, this is something new in everybody's life experience. No, none of them have said, at least, based on what we've got in the movie, that they've ever had to, this kind of a court case before. They've had other, some of them have been jurors before, but they've never had a case where somebody's life is at stake. And an ordinary, everyday person doesn't necessarily have the skill set mentally to deal with that. And that's one of the things that comes up in the movie. Then we've got Joseph Sweeney's character, the old guy, who's people kind of dismiss him because he's an older guy. And to be honest with you, that's something I'm starting to see in my life, where I'm fighting the good fight against it. But people tend to dismiss older people. 
and he's tough a tough old geezer basically his name's mccardle we find out right at the end of the film and he has valid opinions he's sharp as attack he doesn't take shit from anybody i like that character played by joseph sweeney then we've got ed begley who's a garage owner not Ed Begley Jr., Ed Begley Sr., the guy who played General Midwinter in Billion Dollar Brain with Michael Caine. Um, and he has a speech at towards the end of the film where he rants and raves about, basically, has an enormous racist rant, which is something with which we are not unfamiliar on social media these days. And he uses the same cadences, the same arguments, the same poisonous rhetoric that we see these days in those guys and there is a physical reaction that all of the jurors have against his character which is profoundly good filmmaking it's a little bit theatrical but i love the way that it's done and the way that it's choreographed amongst all of the um jurors so we've got him and then we've got george voskvik his character the european watchmaker he um has a profound belief in democracy and a profound belief in the rule of law and i kind of like that he's one of the kind of staunchest up most upright of the characters and of course that's a deliberate choice made because it shows the first generation um immigrants can be among the most loyal that we have and that's something see this movie is kind of threaded with themes that come up in contemporary politics a disheartening amount of time i'm not talking about trump necessarily but they're themes that come up in australian politics a lot too with uh, political parties like one nation and the australian conservatives which is a new one that a senator called cory bernardi has created and is gaining his allies to make into a political force he's getting a lot of money from the Koch brothers that kind of thing so um yeah the themes of this movie are contemporary themes for us and that's one of the reasons why it's such an important film then we've got robert weber's character who's kind of um out of his depth he's an ad man he's an advertising executive he's used to a certain kind of parlay between people and he really doesn't want to go into the nitty-gritty of this he he skims the surface of things and like a lot of the everybody in this movie all of the characters even um henry fonda's character whose name turns out to be davis we only get their last names of the two characters we get their names of all of them find this a profoundly life-changing experience you can tell from the way the actors play it and that's kind of marvelous now going back to what i said were the themes of the film um prejudice versus compassion is a big theme in this one known facts versus opinion is another one there's a certain amount of peer pressure applied guilt versus reasonable doubt perception versus reality and decency versus convenience come in there and i love the way that this movie plays with those ideas all in a single room now Sydney Lobet, the director, made some really interesting directorial choices in this film as well. He starts with the camera above eye level, kind of at a, at a certain height with wide-angle lenses, which gives a greater depth between the subjects. These people are isolated from one another because they're total strangers. And then as the film goes on, 
the focal length of the lenses is gradually increased. And by the way, I'm reading this from Wikipedia because I'm not a cinematographer. I'm willing to learn, but it's not my field of expertise. And by the end of the film, nearly everyone is shown in close-up using telephoto lenses from a lower angle, which shortens the depth of field. Lemaitre stated that his intention in using these techniques with cinematographer Boris Kaufman was to create a nearly palpable claustrophobia about the situation. And it does work. Uh, the movie is set on the hottest day of the year and the fan in the room isn't working, so everybody's getting overheated and sweaty and thirsty and dehydrated. And as the weather breaks, we start to things tilt toward um, acquitting this kid. Uh, the vote starts out 11 to 1, then it goes to 10 to 2, 9 to 3, 8 to 4, 6 to 6, 9 to 3, and then eventually they get a unanimous opinion that this guy is probably not guilty. Now, again, it's a reasonable doubt situation. And that's kind of cool. And there are an uh, interesting thing is, even though one of the characters is Lee J. Cobb's character is a bastard, he almost has a breakdown during the film as he realizes what he has potentially almost done. And one of the other characters shows a great deal of compassion towards him in spite of this. And I like that. I like that moment of gentleness and of camaraderie that's one of the many grace notes that is in this film now there was a 1997 version of 12 angry men directed by william creek and with a very much more culturally diverse um, cast we've got courtney b vance ozzy davis george c scott in the role played by lee j cobb i'm a mueller style dorian harewood james gandolfini tony danza jura eights played by jack lemon Hume Cronin plays the wise old guy. McKelty Williamson's um, the racist guy. Edward James Olmos is the immigrant watchmaker. And William Peterson's the ad-type character. So that has a great cast. I, I think it may have been a TV movie because it did win two Emmy Awards for sound mixing and for um, supporting actor for George C. Scott, even though Hume Cronin was also nominated. So, um, the, again, this is a, a movie that's important for a number of reasons, and it talks to the ideals of our society in a complex way. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington talks about them in a simplistic and slightly comical way, but this movie does it with a lot of gravitas, and, and that's probably the overwhelming word I would use to describe this movie. It's got a shit ton of gravitas. And... The acting is all on point. Uh, all but two of the actors weren't in the original version of this. And yet they come together as an ensemble fantastically well. There's an extra on the um, Blu-ray that I've got of this where they interview various people involved in it, including Lamette and Jack Klugman, who was the surviving 12 Angry Man at the time, but he died in 2014. So there aren't any of them left. And he talked about the feel of the ensemble and how he really loved working with these guys who were the best at what they did uh lee j cobb martin balsam um henry fonda all of the other guys were tremendously professional actors good jobbing actors good character actors even in the case of henry fonda who started out in starring roles but went on to become a fine character actor as time 
beat him up in a dark alley. So for the, the, there was an immense sense of collaboration, I was told, by this ex, these extras. And it sounds like it was a nice place to be. There was some back-of-the-scenes footage where it shows that collaborative process. Um, and it's all still photography, black and white, but you can see from the body language that everybody's committed to the project and everybody's kind of meshing together beautifully in this film. It's just the best. It's one of those movies, and I've said this before about other films, and it's something that keeps repeating in my movie viewing. There are movies that remind you why you love film and why you love the complexity of ideas that a good piece of drama can lay before you and make you think about um, and reassure you in some cases, challenge you in other cases. And the challenge for me with this film comes in being compassionate to assholes and to racists and to people who were brutal to their children. I watched this movie when I was a much younger man. And because of my own family history, I really hated Lee J. Cobb's character for the, his brutality towards his son for very personal reasons. Now, watching it at, at my time of life and with my life experience, I understand the character in more depth. I don't have as much of an instinctive reaction against him. And the fact that he realises that the choices he's made in his life have impacted not only himself but his family is the saving grace. That little tiny, very light touch of redemption really makes that character for me. So anyway, there's not much else to say about 12 Angry Men except see it. It's around, you can find it. It's it's not an obscure and difficult to find film. But it's definitely one you should see. So I'm going to take a break. I'll chuck in some music here to lighten things up and then I've got a bit of feedback.
So I got an email to uh, feedbackpaleo at gmail.com from Nathaniel DeBill. So thank you, Nathaniel. Thanks for your support of the podcast. Um, and he said, Dear Terry, in case you're unaware, there's a really great three-episode series on iView, which is the ABC platform for reshowing their stuff at the moment, which may be of some interest to you concerning Australian motion pictures. It's titled David Stratton's Stories of Australian Cinema. Um, I've got it, Nathaniel. I've got it on disc along with uh, the bio about David Stratton. So thank you anyway. Watching through the series, it occurred to me that unlike the UK where Time Out or the BFI periodically release a top 100 British films ranking, there does not seem to be any corresponding retrospective slash celebration of the best of Australian cinema by perhaps the Australian Film Institute or some other organisation. On your podcasts, you often highlight Australian films that are important to you, such as Newsfront and The Siege of Pinchgut. So if theoretically you were to rank the best of Australian cinema, what would be your top 10? Uh, That's a hard one. Leave that with me. I'm going to have to do my top 10 Australian films. But I'll try to do it for the next podcast. Um, The interesting thing there is none of it's going to be Baz Luhrmann. But um, it is a good idea. Uh, It's going to be one of those dynamic documents if I were to make a top 10 Australian film list because as I see more films and as I kind of remember films, the list would shift around so it would be swirling like a stirred cup of coffee after a while. But it's a good idea and thank you for that one, Nathaniel. He goes on to say, uh, let's have a look here. On another note, more than a month ago when I saw your latest episode concerning Fritz Lang's Hangman Also Die, was in the happy position of having a Blu-ray copy of the title already unseen and unopened on a shelf. I watched the film with no expectations prior to listening to the episode and I was very impressed. The ensemble cast were fantastic and for what was ostensibly a propaganda film, character concerns and motivations seemed to be well scripted and acted. On account of fracturing my left ankle on the 30th of December and currently being early in my recovery from the industry, I've been able to watch quite a lot of films recently. The latest was Peter Watkins' Punishment Park, which was his documentary style movie depicting a near future based on the social and political climate of the place and time of the production, early 1970s Vietnam War America. In the film, young activists were arrested and in a kangaroo court are given the choice of years of imprisonment or three days in Punishment Park, a 50-mile chase in a desert in California where the participants are hunted by police and National Guard. The authenticity of the documentary form of the piece, as well as the use of non-actors, often made me forget that I was viewing a fictional story and not actual events. I thoroughly recommend the film to anyone interested in the premise. Regards, Nathaniel DeVille. Thanks, Nathaniel. I should do Punishment Park for the podcast. Um, I'll put it on the list, which is in the big book with the spaceman on the front. And it's a good idea. Sorry that you broke your ankle. Um, if I were you, if people ask you how it happened, I'd make up really cool stories about it. Like, yeah, well, there were these um, alt-right people beating up somebody and I went in and I sunk in the boot, but I broke my leg doing it. I find a really good story to go with that. I'm not sure how you might have done it, but my theory is always make up something much more interesting than the facts when you break anything just to keep yourself amused as much as anything else. But take care of yourself, and I hope your healing's going really well with that. Uh, 
So yeah, thanks for the feedback. Um, yeah, Punishment Park. I like Peter Watkins stuff. I like Privilege. I uh, like well, like I can't really say you like the War Game because it's such a profoundly difficult and doc again documentary style film that it's a little hard to say that you like it. But I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I agree with uh, Hangman also died. The ensemble works really well and the script plays out as well as the facts that were available allowed it to. But again, thanks for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate your feedback on that. So that is it this time around. It took me three days to get this podcast done because the internet was shitting itself, as I mentioned earlier. It's now Tuesday. I started doing this on Sunday and uh, the man from the national broadband network came out today and replaced the um, splitter in the pit at the front of our house which he said was corroded but none of the previous technicians who turned up uh, had that since he did that this morning we haven't had any drops in the internet which is good sally and i did manage to play a little bit of destiny 2 networked um, online successfully this afternoon so we're quite happy with that so thanks for bearing with me and again i apologize that this one is a couple of days late um people should look up david stratton's stories of australian cinema by the way if uh it's on iview which i think is geolocked to australia but if you're running a vpn you may be able to see it and if you are running a vpn from elsewhere and you want to look at um, ABC iView, you're going to find a whole bunch of good television and a bit of cinema there, along with SBS On Demand is another one I recommend, which is our other national broadcast, which does the multicultural stuff. And they end up showing some really great foreign language films as a part of what they do. So again, thank you to all of the Patreon supporters. I'm really going to have to schedule in getting the credits updated so i can include everybody but i really appreciate the support given both by people offering feedback people who mention things on facebook and by the people who dig into their pockets and help out with the costs of covering these movies i'll be back in less than a week now with a martian driving podcast in two weeks with another paleo cinema podcast so look after yourselves keep watching good bad and indifferent films Talk to people about them. Encourage people to watch films. Do the good things. And take care of yourselves until the next time we have a chat. And here are the credits. Thank you to Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris our Music Director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, the camera operator, Christopher, the gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our set and unit director, Paul, our special effects makeup, special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our monster effects guy. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Richard H, the set photographer. Mark D, extra. David L, the extra. 
Richard C, our transportation co-captain, Carrie L, our Tasmanian consultant, and Kerry C, our accountant. We also have Sally, our continuity girl, and of course the other Sally who is always helpful and encouraging and wonderful. So thank you very much to all of the Patreon subscribers. You too can be a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as a dollar per month. 